the way the Zulus fight, that they're incredibly aggressive. They can move very quickly uh, and you need to be on your guard uh, against them at all times. And far from you actually having to find them, the danger is they will come and surprise you. And that's exactly what happens. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. In this bonus episode in honour of Black History Month, I've pulled together a number of chats where my guests have discussed significant historical black people and events from the 57 episodes published so far and I've put them in chronological order. So we go from one of the first documented black people in Tudor England at the court of Henry VII and his son Henry VIII we talk about African-Americans up against the Royal Navy in American privateers during the War of 1812. We then move to the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879 and a battle when the British suffered a terrible and some would say deserved defeat at the hands of the Zulu nation. Then I have the story of Josephine Baker during the 1920s and 30s and into the war, an extraordinary woman who went from poverty to stardom to espionage. And finally, a Jamaican veteran of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the female army during the Second World War. So we kick things off with the example of the black musician John Blank, who is the only identifiable portrait of an African in Tudor England. Stephen Virapen was inspired to write his novel of Blood Descended, based on Blank, who was a trumpeter in the court of Henry VIII and was relatively well paid, three times as much as that of a servant in Tudor England. I'll hand you over to me and Stephen. Of Blood Descended is your novel that I think was published back in May. And I'm interested in this because it features a, a character who I think is the son of an uh, of a, I, I don't know, he's a, it, I'll let you explain it because you can explain it better than me. Um, but it features a hero who is based on a real person or is the son of a real person. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, John Blank is the real person who was a musician, a trumpeter, or as we call it, a trumpet, at uh, the court of Henry VII and into um, the reign of Henry VIII. And I became really interested in John when I read uh, Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors, which um, was a kind of game changer for me when I read it. It's just a brilliant book. When I read it, I thought, there's a story there because this is a character and a, well, it's a real person who must have led... A really extraordinary life as one of the, the only documented black people in early Tudor England. I, so I thought there's a story there, but I also had in the back of my head, I thought I can't, it's not a story for me today. I can't write John Blank because I don't have that experience. I was really conscious of that. But, um, my dad was actually Mauritian um, and my mum was Scottish, my mum was from Pollock in, in Glasgow. So I thought, well, what if he had a son? And history was kind of kind to me because John Blank, the historical figure, disappears from the records in about 1519, 1520, and we don't know what happened to him. We know he married at least once, because we have a, a record of that earlier on. But then he he's kind of fades away. So um, one of the things I suppose everyone's always trying to do is, well, think where are the gay areas, where are the, the people and the events that, that are invisible or aren't quite there and I thought well I could give him a son and if the son was mixed race that I could write so 
um, that was kind of the, the key and the lock for me for that story. I thought, it's a kind of nice feeling. It doesn't happen very often, actually, is when a character walks into your head and they're, they're formed, you know who they are, you know that person. Sometimes, um, I'll admit, sometimes when you write a, a character, you feel like you're writing a character, if that makes sense. Like you, you're conscious that I've constructed this person and I'm very consciously trying to bring them to life. So it's nice when one of them walks in and they are breathing and they, they feel alive. That's that's a good thing. Um, so that was how Anthony Blank came into being um, kind of walked, walked into. In fact, I remember where I was. It was during the lockdown. It was during the very first lockdown and I was out running um, and he kind of walked, he ran maybe into my head at that time. I um, find running is a great, great time where uh, I, I, I get ideas into my head when yeah. I go running. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And then it gives you an excuse to slow down if you've got an idea, excuse me, to put it into your phone, type it up. Um, so that was how that came about. And then it became a case of thinking, well, what's the story going to be about? You know, how, how am I going to sort of fit this character? who's the son of John Blank, and we know roughly we don't know when he died or anything, but um, we know when John Blank was around, what age would that make a son that could be the protagonist of a story? Um, and of course, that took me into the, the early 1520s. And again, that was just a gift because it's Henry VIII before the sort of bloated tyrant that he became. And there was every year there's something going on. That's why I said that there's... Um, a sequel to come. Again, history's been kind to me because you can look at any year of the 1520s and there's some fantastic bit of spectacle that you can locate a story in. Um, so it became a, a very good place for a murder mystery. I think Henry's quote's always good for a murder mystery because everyone's a suspect. Everyone was horrible. Well, it's funny you, um, you should mention that because just before we joined, I was doing a bit of homework, which was a nice piece of homework because I was watching a bit of Wolf Hall again. Uh, which I know we'll get on to, um, but you're right. Everyone is scheming in mm. Henry VIII's court. So yeah. there must have been quite a rich number of storylines you could you could pick up on. Were there any based on reality or did you sort of create your well, own kind of plot? The key plot, the murder mystery, is um, entirely fictional. No, no one was murdered at, at that time in 1522 that I know of. Um, but the... Background of historical events is true, and I, I try to be as rigorous as possible going back to the records of it. It was the visit of the Emperor Charles V, who was the nephew of uh, Catherine of Aragon, Henry's then queen. He came to England, and there was a, a great summer of, of celebrations and festivities and pageants and things. And again, I thought, well, why hell of a, a place to set a story alongside? So that's kind of running in the background. And where I tried to be rigorous was we do have records of what happened on what day, what day of the week, um, what, what were Henry and Charles doing at this time, what were doing at this time, what were doing at this time. So I tried to follow that timeline um, with these things going on as Anthony tries to solve the murder of one of Rosie's pet scholars who's been charged with putting on a mask of King Arthur and the Black Knight. Next up, we have Nick Guyatt, who was discussing his book, The Hated Cage, which is an account of a terrible massacre at Dartmoor Prison in the early 19th century. Now, the prison was populated by American sailors, among whom were African-Americans who served aboard privateers, 
private ships that were granted permission from the new US government to attack British shipping during the War of 1812. This was a strange war, well known in America now, but less so here in Britain. The story Nick tells is of the sailors captured by the Royal Navy, who were then sent to Devon, where the black sailors made their home in prison number four of HMP Dartmoor. They had to deal with plenty of discrimination, but conversely, it was one that they did not experience to such an extent when at sea. Here's Nick and me. And, and a significant um, percentage of the inmates of, of the prison, of Dartmoor prison, are uh, African-American. Now, one person who does make an appear a very brief appearance, you mentioned, uh, you quote, is uh, Oluda um, Equiano. Equiano, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. But um, mm -hmm. he describes the sea as an opportunity for, for black people. And so... Is that does that mean therefore that um, the inmates of Dartmoor Prison would be sort of you'd get a lot more uh, African Americans and other Black people in the prison simply by virtue of them being sailors? You got a higher percentage of, of Black people on out and sea um, than you would in other works of life. Well, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Maybe the easiest way for me to talk about this is to kind of move outward from the sources. So remember, I told you that like doing this book, I had to learn stuff I wouldn't usually learn or didn't know about before mm. I got into it. So, so one of the things I had to learn how to do was to be a real kind of like historian of details and data. There is an amazing source at the heart of my book and for anyone who wants to get interested in Dartmoor prison which is the prison register and the prison register is relevant to this question about black sailors because the register is one of the most detailed kind of um, documents for trying to capture information about people that you'll find like anywhere in this period of history it's, it's a giant spreadsheet isn't it it's a huge spreadsheet except you can't search it like a spreadsheet i mean unless you do what i did which is geekily really? transcribe all six and a half thousand entries like if you do that Lots of opportunities open up, but you know, I was, I was reading it thinking you must have done this. I mean, it was nuts. It was completely, insane. but you know what? It, it, it lets you, it, it unlocks so many things, particularly since it's actually really hard to see inside the prison. Once you've got the register transcribed, you can actually try and figure out whether when people write about the prison 30 years later, they're telling the truth or not. Anyway, to go back to this question of race, one of the fields, one of the kind of boxes that gets filled out, and, and this is filled out by the our clerks at the prison as soon as people walk in. So when sailors get kind of booked into the prison, there's this gigantic register, which is about as big as a small man. I mean, it's enormous. And it's got all of these fields. And there'll be a prison clerk who'll basically be writing down the information when the prisoners come in. One of the fields says complexion. And again, we haven't got enough time to go into all the details of it. It's kind of more complicated than race, but it's basically the field that will let us figure out roughly how many people of color were in the prison. And so on the basis of that, I can tell you that about a thousand of the six and a half thousand prisoners that were there were black or prisoners of color. So sometimes what gets written in will be a prisoner of color. And that might be someone who is black. It could be someone who is Native American. It might be someone who's black and Native American, like the famous sailor Paul Cuffey. There are lots of kind of permutations. It could be a Chinese guy. There's famously one Chinese person that winds up in the prison. So you've basically got this population which is racially very mixed. And again, to go back to what you said earlier, you're absolutely right that as Alado Aquiano figured out during his time serving in the Royal Navy and in the Merchant Navy, that there is an opportunity at sea for people of color, which is greater than opportunities available on land, partly because there are no discriminations or kind of distinctions in pay. It's based on experience, 
not on what you look like. And although there's a glass ceiling, so it's extremely hard to become an officer if you're a person of color, it's not actually hard to get paid roughly the same as the person who's got quite a lot of experience, but who isn't an officer. So it does become a kind of space that black people are better represented in than almost any other profession, uh, either in Britain or in the United States. So again, you sort of get this weird sense that that world that's very much about the sea runs aground when these folks get captured and brought to Dartmoor with these very interesting consequences. With the div- division of, of each prison block, I guess, it, prison uh, num- the numbering system, one to seven, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, prison four seems to be largely populated by African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, reading the book, it, that sounds like the area I'd want to be in. They seem to brew the best beer. Is that right? And they had the best parties. They had theatre and they had a rule of law as well. I mean, the whole thing is a complete, again, from the perspective of interpretation, is a total nightmare because, so, so just to describe how we get a prison for So initially it's where the French are, uh, and the French are basically in all the different prison blocks. But when the Americans arrive in April of 1813, they're put at the top of prison four, which is where these guys, the Romans are, the naked, kind of feral, depraved guys, or more depraved, lots of depravity in the prison. So in April 1813, the Americans start there. Uh, then in October of 1813, uh, the white American prisoners make a request to the British prison governor. And I should have said the governor is a, um, a Royal Navy captain. So at that point, it's a guy called Isaac Cockgrave. So, so the other thing to think about here is that the prison is basically kind of a Navy outpost. So you imagine all of these kind of captains who've gone off and sailed around the world and, you know, fought alongside Nelson, kind of getting their final gig running a prison, which ends up being quite problematic. Again, I get into that in the book. So the white American prisoners in October of 1813, who are at the top of prison four, which is this prison in the, uh, this prison block in the middle of the prison, they write to the governor and they say, uh, please, could you separate us from black people? So black Americans, we don't want to be alongside our compatriots who are black. And the reason they don't give the reason in the letter that they communicate to the British or or rather many of these letters are gone from the archive. What we have is a kind of um, summary of the letter as it was received by um, the prison authorities called the Transport Board in London. And it doesn't actually tell us the reason that was used by these white American sailors for wanting to separate from the black sailors. Now, one of these white American sailors that I can tell you categorically was in the prison because he's in the register and all the dates check out. It's a guy called Charles Andrews. Uh, And Charles Andrews later said that the reason that these white prisoners wanted rid of the black prisoners is that the black prisoners kept stealing from the white prisoners. Now, again, this is really interesting, right? Because a lot of historians, not many people have written about this at length, but a lot of people have written a tiny bit about Dartmoor. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, okay, so black people were stealing. So why do we think black people were stealing? We have one source for this by the guy who asked to be segregated. So I offer two theories in the book. And again, this is speculation, but I hope it's kind of informed and embedded in the sources. The first theory is I think actually that the white Americans wanted to get rid of the French. (laughs) They wanted to be away from the Romans. So one way to get away from the Romans is to blame black Americans, which again is a language the British authorities would understand. But the second reason, and this may be the more substantial one, is that when you're at sea, You've got captains, you've got officers, you've got this very strange world. You remember I told you earlier that for black people, there is opportunity at sea, as it were, below decks, 
when you're up on top of the deck and you're an officer, that's an all-white space almost entirely when it comes to ships. But below decks, things are actually a lot more equal. But of course, the equality is based on everyone below decks being under the thumb, the absolute rule of the captain and the officers. What happens when you hit Dartmoor is that, generally speaking, the captain and the officers, those kinds of people, are put somewhere else. So actually, they are very often either put on parole, which is a fancy word back then, which meant they basically got their own slightly better conditions of captivity. So they basically were given like a, a house in a nearby town rather than having to be in a prison. Or they were put in a separate part of the prison, a separate part of Dartmoor. So actually, what you get is... This kind of black and white ordinary sailor kind of majority, when they're at sea, they're being governed over by the same white guys. When they're in a prison, those governor kind of white guy, captain, officer types, they all vanish. So what I think is going on in the prison is that prisoners themselves are forming committees, they're forming juries, they're forming associations to try and govern what happens with inside these, within these prison spaces. The, the guy running the prison actually doesn't peer into what's happening within the prison blocks that much. The British give the prisoners quite a lot of autonomy. So this is actually all of a sudden a challenge for these white American sailors, because in a way they have to share power with black people. And that's the reason, I think, that you get this segregation moment. That what's actually going on is that white sailors recognize that they're not going to be able to run that prison that prison block without black people having an equal say and that's what freaks them out so the combination of those two things means that um the request is made in october 1813 it's granted by the british authorities and again we don't have a good paper trail on exactly what the reasoning was but it's granted and then over the course of 1814 initially the black sailors get to share uh, the very very top part of prison four the fourth prison block uh, with a few French people, but then almost all of the French are released in the spring of 1814. By June of 1814, every last French prisoner has been released because the French war is over, temporarily as it turns out. And at that point, all of prison floor four is given over to black people. And that's where things get really interesting because effectively the thousand or so black sailors in prison four, they build their own world. They build a theater, they build a church, they have a casino, they have a boxing ring. They have dancing lessons. You can go there and learn how to speak French or German or Spanish. Um, there's a lending library. I mean, they have this amazing world that they build. And the cool thing about Dartmoor is although you have to go back to your prison blocks at night and your block gets locked up by the turnkeys, during the day, generally speaking, the prisoners are allowed to move from one prison to another. So here's the irony. These white American prisoners originally asked to be separated from the black prisoners. But actually, when the black prison really takes off, these white prisoners are coming back all the time. And you find that out by looking at the diaries and journals that are contemporaneous with the events, because this is a story that got kind of deliberately forgotten and distorted when those white sailors wrote up their memoirs 20 or 30 or 40 years later. Then they were like, oh, no, 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 we just went to the black prison just to laugh at the terrible plays. Or we weren't really interested in religion in the black prison. Go off and look at the diaries and the journals from the time and you see a really different story. So it's bizarre, right? On the one hand, it's a story of segregation and racism. And on the other hand, it's this story of a kind of fascination on the part of white people with the fact that black people seem to be having a better time. Now we're at 1879, and the location is the Cape Province, which would later become South Africa. The Zulu Nation, which was a highly militaristic society, akin to the Spartans, held a loose alliance with the British. Lord Chelmsford and the governor, Henry Bartle Frere, 
decided to invade Zululand unprovoked in a dastardly act. Unfortunately for the British, Chelmsford was a hopeless general and the Zulus won a great victory at the Battle of Isindwana on the 22nd of January 1879. Nearly 1,500 British troops were killed in a Zulu attack that employed the Buffalo Horn strategy as both wings enveloped the British positions under the command of Shingweo Koza in a brilliant attack. There's been some discussion as to whether the victory was due to the slow loading of British rifles. And that's where we pick things up in my discussion with Saul David, the best-selling historian and author of Zulu, The Heroism and Tragedy of the Zulu War of 1879. Um, another one I want to talk to you about is the Battle of Isinluana. Now, um, this is the Zulu War, 1879, and the British are setting up camp under the mountain of um, Isinluana. I think I've, I've got that right. Now, were they overrun by the Zulus because they couldn't load their, their guns quick enough? Uh, no, they were overrun ultimately because of uh, Lord Chelmsford, the British commander's arrogance and underestimation of the enemy. I mean, that's the sim simplest way I can put it. He, he, he uh, launched an invasion of Zululand at three points with three, three invasion uh, And, and just to interrupt you, this invasion was... Uh, an outrageous act wasn't it well it was a war of aggression it was completely uncalled for i mean the zulus were had no intention of making war on the british uh, in fact they had a loose alliance with the british uh, but um uh, sir bartle frere who was the uh, was the governor in in the cape province and who had been sent out to south africa with a specific intention to unify the various different groupings including the Boer republics into a single confederation and the assumption was eventually this will be self-governing and it's going to save us a lot of money in terms of defending this important strategic colony um so sir bartle frere had taken it upon himself to neutralize what he perceived to be a very dangerous thorn in the flesh of the british and that was this zulu kingdom but he was absolutely a war of aggression unprovoked um and the reason the Islam Islamwana comes about is because Chelmsford underestimates, as I say, the, the Zulu threat. He thinks he's going to have to winkle out the Zulus to fight and it's going to take a long time. And so he orders these three invasions that are eventually are going to converge on the Zulu capital of Alundi. And that's when they'll finally bring the um, <laughs> Zulus to battle. He, he should have known and had actually been told by people who knew the way the Zulus fight, that they're incredibly aggressive, they can move very quickly, uh, and you need to be on your guard uh, against them at all times. And far from you actually having to find them, the danger is they will come and surprise you. And that's exactly what happens. And to compound his initial idiocy and his inability to send out pickets and scouts to find out where the Zulu army was, he then divides his army which was initially 5,000 strong into two groups, takes the larger part off on a wild goose chase on the morning of the 22nd of January 1879, which was the day the battle took place. And just a few hours later, having left the camp with inadequate protection, the Zulu army of 20,000 attacks it. Now, you mentioned the, the ammunition. I mean, there is some kind of <laughs> feeling, of course, that if they'd had magazine rifles, maybe they'd have been able to hold out. But they had a they had single shot breech loading rifles, um, Martini Henry's, which was a very good bit of kit at that time and far superior to anything the Zulus had. But of course, you can only load one bullet at a time. So that probably came into the equation to a certain extent. But if 
if Chelmsford had been sensible and kept his forces together, it never would have been overwhelmed. Uh, he learned his lesson, of course, after this and made sure that whenever he did march into Zululand in future, which he did a few months later, he did so with a single uh, column that basically stayed together and lagered every night and created a little mini fortress. And that was enough to eventually defeat the Zulu nation. But this this arrogance of going in in penny packets was what really cost him at Islamwana. The story of Josephine Baker is quite simply amazing. And that's before she got involved in espionage in the Second World War. Born into poverty in St. Louis, Missouri, Josephine rose to fame in Paris in the 1920s and 30s. Then the Germans invaded. But rather live on as if nothing had changed, Josephine joined the French intelligence service, the Deuxième Bureau, and spent the rest of the war as a spy for the British and the French against the Nazis. It's an incredible story, and it's the subject of a new book from Damien Lewis, The Flame of Resistance. Now I've put a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia page for Josephine. You'll see just how glamorous and stunning she was. There's also a video clip of her arriving in Amsterdam in 1929. And there are all these men there to welcome her. And you can see how excited they are to meet this beautiful superstar. I recommend you check it out. Anyway, over to myself and Damien Lewis. And Josephine Baker herself, she's much better known in France. Um, but could you just explain who she was before we, we go into the story itself during the war? Yeah, so Josephine was a... Um... She was born in America, in St. Louis. Um, uh, she was born to a, um, a, a a black mother, but it, her, her father, her, on that side, is it, the parentage is uncertain. Um, but she grew up basically in poverty in, in, in St. Saint Louis, and she saw her, uh, her means to escape that being uh, her talent as a singer and a dancer. And so she... She left home at the earliest possible age and made her way basically to Broadway and managed to get her place, um, managed to get herself a place on a Broadway act as a as a chorus girl. Um, and she tried to forge a career uh, largely in New York um, on the stage uh, as a dancer and a singer and uh, was, was was mostly unsuccessful, largely due to the prejudice that then um, pertained uh, in America where segregation was still, um, you know, uh, very much the thing. And so at the tender age of age 19, she accepted a invitation to, to sail to France, to Paris, and, and to um, play the leading role in a show called Le Revue Negre, um, which was a kind of scantily clad, um, some would say shocking, provocative act, um, but which, as it happened, took Paris by storm. And and in Paris, Josephine and her fellow um, fellow uh, dancers and singers found themselves, um, as, as you would in most of Europe at that time, in a comparatively prejudice-free part of the world. And, and very quickly, Josephine made Paris her adopted home, where she was feted by high society and, 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 and the French people alike, and very quickly became a standout star, a superstar, in fact, of the 1920s and 30s. And, and, and prior to the war, to give you an indication of how famous she was, she was the most photographed woman in the world um, at that stage. Um, and she was one of the first women ever to play a, a starring role in, in the movies that she'd, she'd acted in. So she really had, and, and she'd performed and toured all over the world, Britain, across Europe, South America, um, 
and 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 further afield. So she really was, you know, a a pre-war superstar, and that's how she is largely known by those who know of her to this day. And so her, we'll we'll come to her activities during the war in more detail, but the role that she played was that how has that become apparent in in france or is it is it a sort of an unknown uh, element of of her activity during the war her espionage a, a wartime story is really largely unknown um even in france um and you know as, as you know uh, josephine baker was elevated to the french pantheon um where it's the highest honor in the nation uh, very recently, in the last few months. Um, yes, that was in November, wasn't it? I was yeah, reading about that. In November, yeah. Um, and she's one of only 80-odd individuals in the Pantheon, so it is a, it's an incredible honour. Um, and, you know, um, the French government, French president, cited her wartime role as one of the main reasons, but no one really knows um, what that wartime role entailed, certainly any detail. And, and that's largely because... Um, you know, when you served in the French intelligence services and the Allied intelligence services, you were expected to remain silent for at least 30 years and really for the rest of your life. And so because Josephine died, um, you know, basically 30 years after the end of the war, those espionage activities in which she became such a master um, were things that she really couldn't speak about. So the story has to be compiled from the testimonies and the stories told by all the, those individuals who served alongside her because she was part of a team, very much part of a team. And also, you know, from the documents that are now being released, uh, you know, very fortunately by the French and British governments, which, which you know, um, lend depth and, and truth to the incredible wartime exploits. So really, uh, her, her activity starts quite, quite soon after the Germans invade France. And it's a it's an extraordinary time which you, you you describe really well in the book actually that the the way the once the germans invade the the sort of feeling in, in paris when you know it's chaos isn't it but for the for the french i mean what was it like in the immediate aftermath of the invasion because it's not something that we in britain i think are, are particularly aware of we know you know dunkirk and 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 then um, it, you know, Europe is under the Nazi jackboot. But what, what was what was life like in Paris in the immediate aftermath of the invasion? Well, um, of course, France had suffered terribly in the First World War, as, as had, you know, uh, Britain and other nations uh, and Germany included. And so the French people were very war weary, even as the Second World War loomed on the horizon. The French intelligence services, the Deuxième Bureau in particular, which was the, um, the, the arm that Josephine ended up being recruited by, they knew war was coming. They, that they you know, long before, um, you know, Hitler marched his legions into Western Europe, they knew war was coming. And they were also convinced that France would fall, that France could not stand. The Maginot line was completely outdated and outmoded. It would be bypassed and, and, and France would not stand. And so they, um, they tried to put in place safeguards especially in terms of intelligence gathering, so that when a significant proportion of France was occupied by, by Nazi Germany, as they believed it would be, they could still uh, manage to gather intelligence and get intelligence out of France to aid the Allies. Uh, what happened, of course, was the precipitate, um, you know, fall of France to the Blitzkrieg. In a matter of weeks, the, you know, all of France had either fallen under uh, Nazi Germany's control or, or been turned into the Vichy French, you know, a zone of... Um, 
of Vichy French uh, control. So that that the speed of the collapse was meant that everyone was blindsided, not just the French, actually, not just French intelligence, British intelligence, too. You know, one of the extraordinary things about, you know, that, that I learned via writing the book was that, you know, after the fall of France, the secret intelligence service, the British intelligence service had no agents at all of any shape or form anywhere in France. It was a blank canvas. And so I think it, the speed of that collapse and the, I guess, the shame of that collapse and the shock of that collapse meant that, you know, that they, 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 they coined a phrase in, in Paris, uh, the dishonorable peace, la, la, la paix honteuse. So, you know, um, we have to make an accommodation with uh, our occupiers and it may be dishonorable and it may be distasteful, but this is the... The price of survival and so when you know charles de gaulle general charles de gaulle the, the leader of the free french and embraced by churchill came to britain and gave his june 1940 speech to you know the call to arms to the french people to rise up practically nobody heard him uh, and those that did hear him very few were minded to pay heed um so it was a it was a largely collaborationist defeatist mindset right at that very outset and as you say it's something that we don't we don't we, 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 I don't think we're very aware of in the UK because we were not invaded. And so we have no experience of that. Um, and, you know, it, it's a situation that ended up pitting, you know, French men and French women against each other and families against each other fratricidally in in really bitter and and, and horrific uh, disputes and, and, and warfare. And that's something that this country, you know, Britain managed to to avoid. So how was Josephine uh, recruited? Basically, prior to the war, the single greatest challenge for the French intelligence services and indeed for the British intelligence services and Churchill uh, railed against this repeatedly was lack of funding and lack of staff. You know, a peace dividend after the First World War, the intelligence services in Britain and France were cut to the bone. And so as Nazi Germany flooded France in particular with with agents of the APWARE, the German Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, France was inundated and, and the Dizembro, the Bureau, the Counter Espionage Service, so those tasks with trying to fight against the flood of German agents coming in were, were completely snowed under. Very, very few agents and very little funding. And so they, and there was a standout traitor called, um, uh, called Ensign Orbert, who was a, a French naval officer who not only sold out suitcase loads of French secrets to the to the Germans, um, literally carried them to Belgium and handed them over, but also uh, was in the process of, of selling out the French naval codes uh, to the Germans when he was captured. So, you know, the, the Germans would have been able to read every single signal sent by the French fleet, which was the most fourth most powerful in the world at the time. And so the Design Bureau realised that, that, you know, they needed to try to boost their agent numbers and without a budget to do so and without any support from the French government really who 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 really did not want to face what was coming they decided to utilize a, a system called the honorable correspondence and basically these are freelance voluntary agents spies who are recruited to uh, to carry espionage on behalf of a government out of patriotism um, and, and with a willingness and an ability because of what they do largely with, you know, to do with their work, to travel freely, 
and and declare our espionage. So, you know, classically, it would be businessmen. It would be journalists, actually. It would be anybody who could put themselves in a situation where that they could gather useful intelligence and also who had the ability to do so and um, and not lose their nerve. And bear in mind, these were individuals who, um, you know, not only did they generally went everywhere unarmed, but, you know, they had very little backup if they were uncovered. And despite, you know, despite the fact they were freelance spies, that wouldn't alter the fact that if they were captured, they would face horrendous consequences. I mean, two, two German female spies who were captured um, spying on behalf of Poland, actually, just before the war, were both beheaded by the Germans. And that was their, um, their punishment for, for espionage was, you know, to be, to be beheaded. Um, so, yeah, you face terrible consequences. And in the process of, of recruiting new, a new um, raft of honourable correspondents, um, one of the um, impresarios, so the theatrical managers for Josephine Baker, suggested that she would be the perfect recruit and the Dizembury were most unkeen because uh, one uh, at that time um, women were not seen as being uh, prime uh, uh, intelligence material. Uh, the case of Matahari, the famous um, uh, spy in the First World War who had been a double agent for the Germans and been captured uh, or exposed uh, was still you know very strong in everybody's mind but i i guess most importantly uh the, the 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 reservation was that you know this was a global superstar and how on earth could a global superstar be expected to slip through the enemy's clutches unnoticed and gather intelligence because their very profile uh, would surely mitigate against that but the agent who um was tasked to go and approach josephine baker he was a he was an individual called Captain Jacques Abte, um, a Frenchman, but brought up on, 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 on the region bordering Germany, so fluent in German um, and, and with a somewhat Germanic appearance. When he went to recruit her, he, um, or to approach her to sign her out, he was very, very um, sceptical and doubtful. Uh, he expected her to be one of those showbiz personalities who would shatter like glass at the first hint of danger. Um, and he drove out to her home in, 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 in uh, an, a, a region called Le Vessinet, at the um, Le Beauchene, a, a kind of chateau on the outskirts of Paris, expecting to be met by a, the typical Josephine Baker figure dressed in designer, scantily clad designer clothes, looking, you know, a uh, million dollars. And actually he turned up there and a figure emerged from the bushes of the garden, dressed in a pair of gardening trousers and an old battered felt hat with a tin of snails in one hand, which she had been gathering to feed to her ducks. So this was the other side of Josephine Baker that she kept very hidden. This was the down to earth, um, you know, feisty, um, very practical, um, you know, and, and very, very unrefined, very natural side of her that he just hadn't been expecting. And she welcomed him in, took him into her, her chateau, um, to, 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 the, to the drawing room, they sat in front of the fire. And very quickly, actually, Abte started to realise what it was about this woman who had made her such an incredible superstar, especially on the stage. And that was that she she had this almost unique ability. And, and I've had it described to me by one of her dancers who's still alive, a guy called Jean-Pierre Reggiori. Um, uh, uh, and he he described her ability to reach out from the stage 
and to make every single one of her audience feel not just special, but as if she was speaking directly to him or her, touching, touching them in their heart and their soul. So that ability to do that was very unique. And Abte felt that when he sat down to speak to her, he felt this powerful connection. And he realized pretty quickly that um, if they could harness that to the, to the ends to the, of intelligence gathering, you know, and if she were, and, she, and if she were willing and, and able, then they, that they potentially had a very potent and powerful special agent, uh, uh, honorable correspondent on their hands. And so he said to her, you know, are, 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 would you, you know, words to the effect of, would you be willing to serve um, and be recruited, you know, uh, to the Dizian Bureau? And she basically said words to the effect, France has made me all that I am, and I am ready to give France and the Allies my life. And so, um, you know, very quickly, she, um, she, she basically signed up and said, what do you need me to do? And he said, well, you know, you need to think of yourselves now as one of the team. You are now one of the, one of the Dizian Bureau's brothers. And, and the, the first, I guess, test that he set her was that at that stage, and we're talking before war's outbreak, no one knew, none of the Allies knew, what the intentions of the Italians, Mussolini, would be once war was declared. And of course, we needed to know. It was absolutely vital to know, especially for, you know, control of the Mediterranean, apart from many other things. And so Abte said to her, look, you know, you have a very special in with the Italian embassy in Paris. Go there. Use your charms and your powers and your, and your very prestige, your very profile to try to winkle out the Italians what their intentions are. And about seven days later, she called him up and said, look, we need to meet. And nothing would ever be said over the phone, which was revealing. And, and they met uh, in central Paris. And she said, and she revealed to him what the, exactly what the Italian intentions were, that Mussolini had already made a pact with Hitler and that once war was declared, that would be the, the access, that would be the alliance that was struck. Lastly, we're still in World War II and we have Tessa Dunlop, author of Army Girls, talking about two veterans of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS, the female branch of the British Army. First, Tessa talks about Beryl Manthorpe, who uncovered her ancestry much later in life, and then she talks about Ina Collimore, a member of the ATS from Jamaica who travelled to Britain to contribute to the war effort. Ina is still alive now, 103 years old, I think, and the oldest living ATS vet. Tessa's oral history is a wonderful entry point into life during the war for women in the army. Ina's story could be a book in itself. She was a trailblazer in the Jamaican legal establishment, rising to the top as a judge, and all whilst a mother of three. Writing about that period, I found that our whole language has changed, the way we talk about race, about gender, about sexuality. It's just been turned over on its head, and I found it quite difficult, actually, with one of my women. And she's very honest with me about attitudes towards race. The army gave the ATS lectures on how to behave towards black troops who were coming in predominantly from America and were segregated because the Americans still had segregation and talking about them in, in unacceptable, what would consider now to be totally unacceptable terms. But somehow compiling this and writing about it honestly without undermining Beryl's contemporary reputation as a 99 year old today was a challenge. And in the end, it, um, she, she, because she herself had travelled with time, which, which meant that in the end, that, that you know, the kind of the story had this, uh, what's the word, um, um, a recuperative ending in many respects, where she herself had come from Trinidadian um, ancestry, 
uh, imperial family, but with this um, probably what she thinks was a, was a black ancestor in the family tree that was never identified because you didn't identify with your black ancestors. You're desperately trying to be white, you know, in a very racially um, discriminatory world. And so in the Second World War, there she is saying, you know, we were sort of worried, you know, a bit anxious about black men. We wouldn't necessarily get into their Jeeps or their cars. And there she is in, as Black Lives Matter swirls around us in 2020 saying, oh, but I want to know actually if I have black blood, I want to know what my DNA is. I want to know what I shared with these troops, not what divided us. So there's something kind of poetic about that. And it showed about how far we've come just in one lifetime, that how far the thinking has come on. I would say there was, I, did, I do still have, she's still alive, she's the oldest. I said my oldest is 102, actually no, Ina is 104. And the reason sometimes I don't include Ina in the way that I should, she's from the West Indies, is that I never actually got to personally speak to her. And I'm really strict and fussy about being able to speak to these women myself. Do you know, otherwise, you know, it's just sort of like any other compilation history book. But for obvious reasons, in a pandemic, aged 104, in Barbados, where she now lives, this proved um, a step too far. And her daughter gave me access instead to a pre-recorded Zoom she had done, a Zoom one-hour interview she had done and other materials that were available and answered some questions that I had about Ina's life. But I wasn't able to talk to her directly, um, uh, which I'm, I'm sad about, but that's, that's life and that's extreme old age and that's a pandemic. But Ina was an interesting case, you know, um, she she was um, a West Indian ATS girl and there were very, very um, few of them indeed. Um, just a hundred came over to serve in Britain. Uh, there were more recruited locally, there were ATS girls recruited in India, in the Middle East and so too in the West Indies. But this was a big standoff between the colonial office and the war office. The war office did not really want women of colour in Britain. And the colonial, and the colonial office was keen, right? It was very keen because they needed to show these, you know, parts of the empire that are straining to break free of the mother country. Hey, we're all in this together. You can fight in our imperial war. We're equal. So there's two different narratives going on. And the war office misjudged it. Actually, the reception these very few of 100 or so girls got in Britain was, was um, not exclusively, but certainly from Ina's point of view, was a very warm one. Um, they, they were welcomed and they were all fighting on the same side. As, as her daughter said, you know, there was a common enemy. And that's a, that's a message I had quite a lot that, you know, that actually there was this, and we, uh, you know, when the four nations of Britain stood together, when there was this kind of, and I think that's one of the reasons why we see it as the kind of high noon of modern Britain. Nothing binds hearts and minds like a common enemy. And uh, Ina had a, had a great, you know, she, she, she talks about the war very fondly. And um, she went on to train over here legal, legally in, in Britain, Gray's Inn Road, and, and goes back and is a phenomenal um, sort of trailblazing female barrister in Jamaica. So, yes, it was a great story. And, and she was um, on the anti-aircraft sites, too. I do hope you enjoyed those chapters. If you want to hear more on any of these, you can go back to previous episodes of the podcast and listen to them in their entirety. Coming up, I talk with Max Hastings about the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're right at the 60th anniversary of the 13 days when the world came close to obliteration. Max is on great form as we discuss insane American generals, mad Russian leaders and the Kennedy brothers who navigated their way through an incredibly febrile time in global history. I do hope you can join us and please do subscribe. Thank you and good night.